0: I knew there was a podium somewhere. I thought I was supposed to carry it out, but Jonathan's taking care of business as usual. Thank you. Um, welcome. It is so good to be here this morning. Um, as always, how exciting to see people celebrate entering God's kingdom one of the one of the amazing things and, and again like. Like Craig said, it's not this act of baptism that saves a person, but that is a celebration and a a proclamation of what does save people. And that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's what happens at the moment of salvation. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that's what we celebrate with water baptisms. What an exciting thing. Hey, the Great Commission... Um, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I'm, I've commanded you and I'm with you to the end of the age. What an incredible, wonderful thing. So we've been going through a, a series on leadership and um, we've, we've covered several things. We, we talked about the fact that humility is essential in spiritual leaders. People that are humble, that, are re- that recognize they are not over people. They are not better than everybody else. They are people under God who struggle with sin, uh, who struggle just like everybody else, and God has called them to graciously and lovingly care for other people. And the, so the second thing is that spiritual leaders need to be spiritually qualified, they need to be living spiritually faithful lives. If you don't trust God's word, if you don't have a relationship with God, if he is not Lord of your life, how can you ever help somebody else walk down a path that you have not walked? You can't do it. And so we need to find people who over time have demonstrated spiritual faithfulness in their life. It's one thing for a person to read the Bible and say, yeah, you know, we should, uh, Psalm 119 just kind of emphasizes that we should read the Bible every day. And it's a person who never reads the Bible. How would that person help somebody else learn to develop a habit, to overcome the difficulties and challenges, unless first they figured out what makes it hard for me to read the Bible? How do I create a habit? How, how do I respond to the things that I see? And so leadership, it is essential that leaders demonstrate over time that they know what God says and that they are committed to obeying what God says. And by the way, that includes failure because every single person struggles with sin, leaders like everyone else. And part of a leader's example is that when they fall short, when they step away from what God has said they should do, how do they respond? Do they repent? Do they change? How do they think about God's grace and mercy in their life? Because leaders who do those things well, who are personally obeying, And who when they fail, they repent and they dwell and think about God's mercy and grace in their life are people who can help others repent when they get off track and think about themselves according to God's mercy and grace and love and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So we need leaders that are spiritually faithful and that demonstrate that in their own family, in their own marriage, and in the way they do ministry. So we need leadership. It's essential. Uh, the other thing that is essential, and Craig, Craig nailed this. He talked about the fact that leadership is spelled servant. Um, the, Jesus said that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. Leadership and authority is about how, how is this position going to benefit me and how can I control other, somebody else? But biblical leadership is servanthood. And then uh, last week... We talked about the fact that, that spiritual leadership um, is required that, that spiritual leaders shepherd, that they care for people, that they're aware of what is going on, that, that on God's behalf, they pursue God's sheep. And that is an incredible responsibility that God has given leaders. And we should be praying for our leaders. We should recognize that, that they struggle. We should think about the fact that they have a job description that is way too big for any individual. So we've been we we had an elder meeting uh, yesterday, and our elder meeting kind of had a short agenda with a bunch of logistical things on it, and our meeting went like over an hour late, and uh, the reason is that we were talking about what God has called us to do as shepherds. We're thinking about the people in this church and just asking ourselves. Are we helping and caring for the people that God has commissioned us to care for? And there was kind of this sense of heaviness in the room. And uh, people as they're walking out feeling like, man, uh, I'm not doing all that God calls me to do. Which, by the way, go back to number one. That's humility. Of course you can't do it all, but just make sure that you're being faithful with what you can, that we're praying. We're praying for people. We're begging God for help. We're asking God to do things in people's lives that we're unable to do. And so these are just the kind of things we're talking about what we're doing. And then today, uh, today we get to a section about God's design, the role of men and women. This is our controversial morning. And uh, it's we're not going to finish it up today. We're going to just start today. We're going to look at what God says. We're going to start looking at what God says about this. And um, when, I, when I came here to this church, somebody told me, uh, a uh, guy giving me advice, lots of years of experience. He just said, Roger, don't be controversial. And... Um, So I thought, okay, I'm going to work hard on not being controversial. And it's kind of funny because I got here and I remember it was like in my first week or two of preaching. I got up and I was preaching a sermon. I went to the back of the room and somebody in the back of the room goes, wow, uh, good sermon. I appreciated that. You are a brave man. (laughs) And, And I just remember just standing there and going, oh, thank you. And then I thought to myself, okay, what did I say today that was controversial or or required bravery? You know, it's like I I was like, so I was asking people, um, so did I say anything today? Like, what did I say that was like controversial or challenging? I'm not sure I ever got a clear view of what that individual was thinking about. But this topic I know is controversial. And so we're going to be talking about the fact that this church has a history of having men pastors. We, we, this church has never had women pastors. Um, this church, um, having people preach on Sunday morning, the, the people who preach are always men. Like that's been the history of this church. And so that's kind of been our history. That's actually the history in a lot of churches, and that's actually very controversial right now. There, there, there's a lot going on in that regard. And one of the things that um, I remember um, just studying a passage that addresses the role of men and women and how those things are supposed to work their their way out. And so I'd gone to Bible college, and so I spent four years studying the Bible. I'd been a pastor in a church for about, you know, probably three years. And I come to this passage, and I'm studying it. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, okay, I know which view I have, what seems natural to me. When I read scripture, it kind of seems like that's what it's saying, and, um, and then I was reading some commentaries on it, and there's somebody with a different view who says if you really understood Greek and Hebrew, you'd know that is not what this means, and then I read somebody else who says, well, if you really knew Greek and Hebrew, you would know this is what this means, and I'm just looking at these two. Um, by the way, I respected both of the authors. They were both very well-educated. They had both studied and so I'm just looking at this passage, and I'm thinking, okay, so somehow there's something here that this person's saying this, and this person's saying somewhere else, something else. And I actually, like, I kind of picked which one I was, which position I held, but I just thought to myself, you know, nobody is uh, neutral when it comes to these kinds of things. Nobody just grows up without prejudice, without agenda, and I and I'm going to now depart into something that I've really been wrestling with whether or not I should even bring up, because we, we don't want this as a problem, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I suppose it's time for me to start being controversial. <laughs> so have you, just, just let's just think for a minute about what's been going on right now, today, with this whole COVID-19 debate stuff, with masks, with no masks. Should you get vaccinated? Should you not get vaccinated? Have you noticed that it does not matter which position somebody has, they can back it up with science? People have a tendency to pick the information that supports their decision and ignore all the information that doesn't support their position. There are medical doctors that are saying everybody needs to get vaccinated. And they have good degrees, and they've been practicing, and they've been doing that. And then there are medical doctors with good degrees that say, if you get vaccinated, that's like committing suicide. And it's like these are both intelligent people that function in the world. How does that happen, that, that we have a culture where people, they have a personal agenda and then they ignore certain things and they embrace other things. And this is the fact. That is not just true of people when it comes to COVID-19. Um, that is not just true of scientists as they approach the world uh, that they're not neutral. It is true in the church. It is true in the way that people approach their theology. We are not neutral. Neutral. Uh, We have an experience, we have all these things that impact what we believe and how we think and the grid through which we interpret things. So I actually, while I was sitting there and studying this passage, I just thought to myself, I do not want to be a pastor who just gets up and preaches things according to their own preference. That because I was raised a certain way, I'm going to promote that. Because there's something that kind of feels comfortable to me, I'm going to embrace that. That is not the way I want to minister, not the way that as a Christian I want to approach life. I, I want to humbly submit myself to God. I want to submit to his word. I want to read it. I want to take it from what, for what it says. And since I got here, I've been saying to everybody at this church, if you don't like what the Bible says, then change what you like. We don't change the Bible to match us. We change ourselves to match the Bible. And I, I say that to other people because that is what I do. And here's the other thing with that. We have diversity in the body of Christ. We have people who, who love the Lord, who have a desire to know the truth, and yet have different theological convictions about things. And that is because no matter how hard we try to push out our sinfulness, our prejudice, we have a sinful flesh. And sometimes we get it wrong. And that is why we faithfully hold to what God says, but it's also why we love each other. Every time I look at somebody else and I just think, man, how could you think that? How could you read the Bible and think what you think? And yet I know these people and they they know the Lord and I, I respect them. And then I think to myself, okay, so where is there something like that in me that I'm convinced is true, but I'm just not looking at it correctly? Um. My opinion about the whole COVID-19 thing, Um, I don't think we can trust the experts. Um, They're all biased, all of them. And I think that the way that we should approach all those things is each of us needs to get whatever information we can. We need to think things through. We need to evaluate our own risk and our own situation. We need to make decisions for ourselves. Can I tell you something about Christianity? Um, God has designed leaders and we've talked about authority and we need to respect the leaders and the authority that God's given us. We need to take teachers and we need to have these faithful men who have studied and over a period of time they've honored God in their life and we we need to esteem and respect and desire leadership, advice, and encouragement. But do you know what God never intends for anybody to do? God never intends for any person to say, you make my decisions for me. And just pick a person and let them tell you what to do. The Bereans in Acts were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were amazing. It says in the beginning of uh, the book of Thessalonians how they received the word of God for what it really is, the words of God, and not the words of men. The Bereans were more noble-minded because when Paul preached to them, they opened up their Bible, and they read it, and they said, does what he, is what he's saying, does it match this? They evaluated, and here's the reason why. You are accountable to God for how you function, for what you believe, and for what you do. And let's just make another step to the COVID-19 stuff you are going to live with the consequences of your decision. You decide to get vaccinated and vaccines kill everyone, you're going to die. If you decide not to get vaccinated and without a vaccination you're going to die, well, then you're going to die. And and that's part of it is we live with the consequences of our choices. That's part of how God designed life. And that's one of the things that uh, my view of pastoral authority, I think we need to use it. We need to step into people's lives and say, what you're doing is wrong. This is what God says. We need to call people to obedience. But no pastor gets to tell anybody else what to do or what decisions to make or make their decisions for them or live their life for them. And, uh, And as believers, we stand under the authority of Christ, and we have God's word to help us with that. And so um, I just want you to know I have have really strong convictions on this issue. And I see things that are challenging to understand. But one of the things that I think about as I look at things is sometimes it's not because things are hard to understand that we have controversy. It's because people don't like what it says is why we have controversy. And I realize... As committed as I personally feel, I could be wrong. Have you ever really been sure about something and been wrong? And so that's why um, we're going to explain kind of the history of our church and where we are today. And my personal commitment is this. I don't care what our tradition is. I don't care what um, people or organizations or denominations think. I care about one thing, and that is what does God say? And so as a body of Christ, we challenge each other, we sharpen each other, we look at God's word, and that's what we do. So um, on this whole issue of, um, you know, uh, the role of men and women, did God design the man to be the leader of his home? Is the husband the head of the wife? Is the wife supposed to submit to her husband? Um, You know, why is that such a challenging issue? How about in the church? Um, Are men supposed to be pastors? Are they the ones that are supposed to be the teachers in the church? Is that true? Why is that so challenging and controversial? And I think it's because um, we have a tendency to mess everything up. And so it doesn't matter what we do. There are sinful, wrong ways to go about doing it. And so it's challenging to actually look at Scripture and say, okay, um, what part of this whole thing is sinful and what part is right? And so, and I'll, you guys all know, I think, where I stand on these issues. But for example, men are to be the leaders in their home. Um, well, what about all the abusive men? What about all the people who they just disregard everything God says about servant leadership? They disregard everything that God says about sacrificial leadership and putting the needs of other people first. And they're abusive and they're controlling. And some people define Christian leadership in the home by the sinful way that people live that out and then they say that can't be right God can't want this and it's because they associate things with male leadership in the home that God never intended or said should be part of male leadership in the home and the same thing happens in the church the same thing happens in culture and in society there are all kinds of sinful wicked ways that people do things and then people go that can't be true and so um, I'm going to give you the punchline, and then we're going to jump into Genesis this morning. Um, but the punchline for me is, is I do believe that God intends men to be the leaders in their home. I think God has designated men to be the leaders in the church. And I don't think that that means that women should sit in the back of the church and be quiet and not do anything. And you're really talented, and you're really good at things, but... Don't do any of that stuff because you're not a man and the men are going to take this and take care of things. Um, I don't believe that. Um, I think that God intends every single person to fully use every gift, every talent, every ability that they have in the body of Christ. And one of the things I hate about this whole discussion is that a lot of times instead of saying, hey, this is who God calls you to be, be this. It turns into You don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And I don't think we should focus on what we shouldn't do. I think we should all, not that we don't need to know those things, but the focus of all of this is be everything that God made you to be. I mean, read Proverbs 31 and then take some traditional stereotypes about the role of women. How does that match up with what God says in Proverbs 31? It doesn't. Um, I am married to somebody. Um, It's her birthday today, by the way. Uh, it's, it's Bobby's birthday, so this is like the birthday week for our family. Yesterday was Michelle's mom's birthday, who's with us. Today is Michelle's birthday. Tomorrow is Cannon's birthday. He's crowding our birthday holiday uh, thing. Uh, tomorrow is me and Jessica's birthday, and there's, oh, the day after tomorrow. Thank you, Michelle. I forget when I was born, but um, anyway, so we got a lot of birthdays going on, but I just want you guys to know I, I love Michelle. I want her to be everything that God has called her to be. Not once in our marriage have I said, you're better at this than me, but I'm the man, so let's not have use of your gifts or abilities. I'll do this. Um, I have two daughters and two sons, and I've taught them all growing up, this is what God says and this is who you should be. And never did I say to my amazingly brilliant, talented daughters, you're good at this, but you're a woman, so put that on the side. I think they should function fully in the church, and they should function fully in life, and everything that God has blessed them with, they should should use. So um, anyway, so that's where we're going to end up. I want to be honest with you and just tell you where I'm at and um, what I believe God's word teaches, and now let's read it, and you can evaluate these things for yourselves and and decide what you think. So we're going to look at the book of Genesis this morning, and uh, Genesis... um, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, and we basically have two points, and they're kind of simple. God is the designer, and God's design, uh, it's always a bad idea when we disregard God's design. That's always bad. And we're going to look at Genesis because you want to know something. As the Bible, throughout the Bible, in, a, in the New Testament, in marriage, when it's talking about the role of men and women in marriage, do you know what the New Testament does? It refers to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. When Paul's talking about the role of men and women in the church, do you know what he does? He refers to Genesis. So if we're going to look at all those passages and try to understand them, how about we read Genesis? And um, so we're going we're to do that. We're going to read Genesis. And, and just a couple comments about Genesis. You know, uh, one reason why there's so much diversity as, as we approach Scripture is that people view Genesis in completely different ways. There are people who think that Genesis chapter 1 through 11 or, and people put that mark in different places, Genesis 1 through 11 never actually happened. That's just kind of a story. It's not real and it's not history. Uh, There are people who say Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You read it, it kind of sounds like it's saying some things, but actually it's not saying any of that stuff. Like, none of that stuff is really true. None of that stuff really happened. Now, my son's in a seminary class, and in his hermeneutics book, which hermeneutics is just a big word for how do you read and interpret Scripture, and and in his hermeneutics book that he's reading in seminary, it says that it doesn't matter if when the Bible portrays that Paul wrote something, it doesn't matter if Paul actually wrote it. It could have been a person lying. And saying, I'm Paul, and I'm writing, and maybe it wasn't Paul, and that actually doesn't matter as to whether or not it's inspired. And uh, then his teacher, I was very glad to hear this, stood up, you know, was teaching the class and explaining how wrong that was. And I just want you to know, if, um, if the New Testament says Paul wrote something and the person writing it is lying, I don't trust that. If in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis portrays something as history and it's not really history, um, that's, that's not like just an insignificant thing to me. If I can't trust the Bible about how it says we got here, why would I trust it about anything else? If you can't trust who wrote the book, why would you believe anything in it? And so a lot of people say our view on these things doesn't matter. And I just want you to know it does matter. I think it matters significantly. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 1. And let's look at what it says here in Genesis chapter 1. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So we're not going to get into all that stuff, but I just want to again tell you where I'm at. When it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, I think that means that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's go to verse 5. He called the day light. I think that that's why we call the day light is because God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning and there was the first day. You know what I think that means? I think there was an evening. I think there was morning. And I think that was the first day. And I got to tell you when it comes to this kind of thing and all the stuff in Ephesians about the role of men and women in marriage and all the things that the Bible says about the church, there are people who read specific statements and then go, "But that's not what it means." And I'm not saying that we can't dig into things for nuance, but in the study of Genesis chapter 1, the whole of Genesis chapter 1 through 11 uses the Hebrew grammar of historical narrative. Not poetry, historical narrative. So I searched all of the poetry in the Old Testament for this Hebrew grammatical structure to see, does this show up in poetry? And I did find it, there was, a, there was this one psalm that had just like this repeated example of this Hebrew narrative grammatical structure. I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe, could that mean that this is poetry? So I flip over to that psalm. You want to know what that psalm was talking about? The Exodus, this happened, and then this, it was a poem about historical narrative. And that's where the historical narrative showed up. So anyway, I've now let you know kind of my approach to to this, and that's significant. Psalm 24.1 Psalm says this, um, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. God made the world. God owns the world. He has the right to tell everybody what to do, and we have the obligation to obey him. And that includes leadership. It includes marriage. It includes anything else. Nobody gets to say, I don't like this. I'm not going to do it. So as we approach life, as we approach everything, we just submit ourselves to Scripture. Let's talk about how God made people in in his image. Let's go to Genesis 1-26. We'll skip all the creation of the world, and, and we'll just go to Genesis 1-26, and it says this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You know, what does it mean to be made in God's image and who is made in God's image and what's the significance of that? As you read and study this whole gender issue thing, uh, one of the reasons people will say there can be no uh, gender distinctions because God has made both men and women in his image. He has given them both the same job. There cannot be distinctions. They're both made in God's image. It's not men that are made in God's image and women are something else. And by the way, this whole thing of creation, um, it it impacts everything about life. Um, Racism is simply an expression of people who don't read the Bible and who don't understand that everybody is made in God's image. Everyone. All the gender things that are problems, that are sinful, that are, that are unbiblical expressions of the difference between men and women, come back to the fact that people don't fully grasp or understand or embrace that men and women are made in God's image. And so that's true. Men and women are made in God's image. And um, so let's just talk for a second about uh, what is being made in the image of God. What does that mean? And so the question is, is that concrete or is it a role that we are made in God's image? And so people have said that um, being made in God's image means that you have mind, will, and emotions. Well, some people think it's your physical body. Uh, We could just discount that because the Bible says that God is spirit And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and and truth. God doesn't have a physical body. He is not in one place at one time. We are not made in God's image in that we have two eyes, two ears, two hands, and two feet. That is not what it means to be made in God's image. And and by the way, we kind of define some of these things by what else Scripture tells us. And so as we figure out how to work out all these things, we are looking at what this says, but we're going to say, well, what else does God say? So what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, some people say mind, will, and emotions. And I'm just reading Scripture, and do you know who's not made in God's image? Angels. By the way, angels have, some of them, have two hands and two feet, and then there's also angels that are made differently. But, but there are angels who are made physically. They look like men. And so we know that's not what it means to be made in it, God's image. But as you read about angels, you know they have a mind. You know they have will. And did you know they have emotions? Like as you read scripture, angels have emotions. And angels are not made in God's image. So I don't think it's mind, will, and emotions that is an expression of God's will. Because you find mind, will, and emotions in beings that are not made in God's image. And I think if we look at this passage, um, that it's, it's the role that God has given mankind. We are unique in that we represent God on the earth. Look at verse um, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. God has placed man on earth to rule in his place, to have dominion. We represent God, which, by the way, Um, If somebody sends an ambassador, I mean, the New Testament says that we're ambassadors for Christ, right? If somebody, if one country sends an ambassador to another country, how you treat that ambassador is how you're treating the country. And that's why in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says, if you kill a person, you get the death penalty. Why? Why? Because people are made in God's image. And when you kill a person, you are attacking God himself. And nobody has the right to attack God. Life is given by God and only God can take it. And so Genesis 9-6, that's a reason for the death penalty is people are made in God's image. They represent God. God has put us as people on earth to rule on his behalf, to have dominion. That's what God intends. And um, men and women equally do that. So does the argument work that there can be no role discri- dis- distinctions if God has said to men and women, you represent me and I give you the job of having dominion over the earth? And I would just say, logically, that is not, that, those two things do not exclude each other. If you say to a military unit, your job is to go take this hill, and it's all of their jobs. All, that's, that's, the, that's what they've all been given. Uh, does that mean there's no general? Does that mean there's no commander? Does that mean that there's no, no soldiers? No. Um, you could certainly have the same job, but it's your job to work together to accomplish something. And roles, authority, how all those things work, potentially are just how, how you work together in accomplishing that. And so, how do we answer that question? Well, we have to look and see what else did God say. Is that all God said? He just made this general statement, or did He get specific about how you're to work together in accomplishing what God has called you to do? And here's the thing that you could say with "made in God's image," there is no value distinction between men and women. Uh, Men and women, you know, one gender is not more valuable, not more gifted not more talented, um, there is no distinction. And there's a lot of people who, as they approach this whole discussion, they say things like, well, Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't, and so women are gullible. And so we can't have women in leadership, they're gullible. When you have these really challenging, difficult situations, it's hard to figure out what to do. Can't have women in those roles because they just they can't evaluate the tough things. Um, life's kind of told us that's not true, right? I mean, first of all, God doesn't say that, but life tells us that's not true. Um, so that's, that's how I think there are all kinds of things like that, that people read into what God says that are actually not a part of what God is saying. So as we try to figure these things out, we need to figure out what does God say. And so um, the New Testament tells us this as far as value. It says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. I I put in verse 27 because of our baptism. I want this to encourage those of you who just got baptized. But here's verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. there There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We have equal standing before God. By the way, in 1 Peter, when... Paul's talking to husbands about how they relate to their wife. He says, You better be careful how you treat your wife because she is a fellow heir of the grace of God. And if you don't treat your wife right, I will not hear your prayers. How do you like that? God says to the men, You're an arrogant, prideful, ungodly leader. I don't hear you. Um, So, so God's intention in marriage, all these chauvinistic things that happen in marriage, and all the things that people slaps that that people say, "Oh yeah, the Bible and church," and they all hold these things. Those are all things that God hates. And when men do it, He says, "I don't listen to you." And so all of that goes back to these things. So men and women are equally loved, valued, uh, equally dependent. In the New Testament, Paul says. Um, uh, no, no man is born without a, without a wife or without a mom. You know, it's like we all are dependent on each other. Um, so we share the same purpose God intends that we work together. And so, um, but this is the other thing too, I think an important point to make is that men and women are individually made in God's image. It is not a couple. That is made in God's image. It is a man that is made in God's image and it is a woman that is made in God's image. And there are some people that feel like, man, if you're not married, you're not complete. And, and, and full, the fullness of expressing, expressing what God calls you to do takes marriage. Now, marriage is awesome. I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, I think marriage is a good thing. But you know Paul tell, talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says that you're actually more able to serve God when you're single in some ways because you don't have the distractions and commitments in life. And Paul highly recommends singleness. And so, so for people to think that you're only fully who you can be if you're married is also not biblically true. Uh, individually men are made in God's image and individually women are made in God's image. Let's read verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. People are confused about priority. There's times that a person needs a house, but people will say, no, you, you, can't, you can't have a house because there's, there's a weird lizard that lives there. And people... <laughs> Um, value sometimes animals over people. You know, it's illegal to destroy the egg of a bald eagle. Like, you go to prison for that. But you can kill babies in the United States. There are people who are so confused... Um, by the way, creation, the Bible also tells us that a godly man cares for the needs of his animals. Animals are not meaningless. They are God's creation. Insects are not meaningless. They are God's creation, and we're here to care for them and have dominion over them, but people and animals are not even in the same category of value. People are made in God's image. Animals are not. I've, I've said to people if you had to choose between saving the life of one person or every single endangered species on the planet, what would you choose? That is an easy choice. You save the person. That discussion came up when somebody shot a, a gorilla in a zoo to save a baby. And people were traumatized. How could you kill the gorilla? Like, that, that wouldn't even take a half a second's thought. People are made in God's image. Animals are not. And so we see that, that we have dominion over animals. We are in a different category than animals. And we're to multiply and fill the earth. God's intention for people is that we have kids, that we multiply. I, I've told some of my friends that Michelle and I multiplied because it was two of us and now there's four. So if you're married, you got to have at least three because otherwise you're just reproducing. You're not multiplying. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just, just teasing. That was a joke. But we're supposed to multiply and fill the earth. And, you know, actually our purpose is to have kids and to worship God before them and to teach them to worship God and to fill the earth with people that recognize what it means to be made in God's image and who are worshiping God. And then verse 29, God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seeds in its fruit and you shall have them for food and to the beasts of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has breath of the breath of life i have given every g- green plant for food and it was so and god saw everything that he had made and behold it was good and there was evening and there was morning and there was a sixth day <laughs> i think that means there was an evening and a morning and i think that was happened on the sixth day And then in chapter 2, God designed men and women to complement each other. And so let's read what this description. So God created men and women in his image. Genesis chapter 2 zooms into what did that creation look like? How specifically did it happen? So let's look at this. Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, And on the seventh day, God finished his work and all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it he rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. And these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Look at verse 7. And then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord... God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God takes dirt and he makes Adam. He, he puts it into Adam's form and then he breathes on it and Adam becomes a living person. And I think that that means that God shaped the dirt into the form of Adam and then he breathed on him and Adam became a living being you know, there are people who think none of this happened. None of it. Um, And it's going to go on to record the fall of mankind and conversations between God and Adam and Eve. And there are people who don't think any of that stuff actually happened. I think all those things really happened. So then there's a description of the garden that God made in verse 15. And the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So God gives this instruction to Adam. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man that he should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So that's how God made Adam first, and then he made a helper Eve. And a lot of people uh, really struggle with this whole idea of helper. You want to know who in the Bible is talked to most about being a helper? Uh, God himself. God is our helper. It is not derogatory to be a helper. But that does say something about God's creation and his purpose. Now, from from the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God's going to make Eve, but he's helping Adam realize he needs Eve. Adam is alone. He's naming all these animals, and he's just realizing there is nothing on earth like me. And the way that people approach Genesis is they think, that the whole idea of there's nothing on earth like me, that's all God's communicating. It does not mean that there were animals that Adam actually named. And they actually, they divorce what the Bible says from historically what took place. And they just go, oh, it's only the meaning. Nothing else that got, that is set, set, stated here is real. And I would just say, uh, yes, it is the meaning. But the meaning flows out of the historical event. There's not a separation or a distinction between those two things. And so you can't just say, here's the message. We don't believe anything else. We're just going to take the message. No, we take it all. Because if we can't trust what God says, then we can't trust him. Why would we trust anything? And then it says in verse 21, this is specifically how God made women. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And, you know, that's kind of crazy, right? Like, let's just take a step back and think about this. God scrapes dirt together and breathes on it, and it becomes a person. And then he makes this person go to sleep, and he pulls a rib out of the person, and he forms that into a woman. Isn't that kind of weird? When was the last time you saw something like that happen? Like uh, in your biology class, did you ever see that happen? Like I heard about this debate between the evolutionist and the Christian, or or God and the evolutionist, and he's like, okay, I created life. Now you create life. And so so the scientist goes and gets all the dirt, and God says, no, get your own dirt. (laughs) So that stuff's crazy, right? Isn't that kind of unbelievable that something like that could happen? Um, What about, like, when was the last time you saw somebody dead and somebody walked up and just, like, touched them and they came back alive? Like, I personally haven't seen that. I mean, I've heard stories about that, but I've not seen, like, Like a guy walking into a morgue. When was the last time somebody went into the morgue and these people had been dead for multiple days? They just walked through and he just raised everyone from the dead. Like all these people claiming to raise people from the dead. I'm like, I know some hospitals with morgues. Uh, Come, let's go visit them. Let's see what we got here. People who are claiming to heal people. I'm like, there's some hospitals. Let's go check it out. Um, Let's go into some hospitals and let's go into cancer wards and let's just send everybody down the road. But When we were reading in the New Testament about Jesus and about the apostles, didn't they raise people from the dead? Didn't they heal people that were sick? And so obviously, yeah, God's designed natural laws. He's designed those things, and we live by those things. But who made those? God. And so this is the thing is that I think, well, it's kind of hard for somebody to scrape some dirt together, breathe in it. It would be kind of hard to pull a rib out of somebody and make that into a person But we start by saying there was nothing, and God spoke, and everything came into existence. And I just want to ask you, is it harder to make somebody out of dirt or just create everything out of nothing? Is it harder to pull a rib out and turn that into a person um, or to just create everything out of nothing? If you make life, if you make... Lungs, if you make air, if you design the human body to breathe in and to breathe out and how blood flow works and all those kinds of things, is it hard for the person who made that stuff up and brought it into existence to do something? See, miracles are challenging if you start with the assumption that there is no God. But when you realize that there's a God and when you believe the things that the Bible says, there's actually nothing in it that's hard to believe. A virgin gave birth. I don't believe that. I've I've not met a single virgin that's been pregnant. You know, it's like, yes, but the one who made the reproductive process did this. And so um, our, our view of God, our worldview, shapes how we view these things. And then this is what it says in verse 23. Then the man said, at last... This is at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out a man. Adam is kind of excited when he sees Eve. And um, he goes on and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, God intends marriage... He intends marriage to be permanent. We meet somebody, we love them, we get married, and God intends that to be permanent. And sex is only for marriage. Uh, The man and his wife were one flesh. They were naked. They were not ashamed. God has designed sex only to be in marriage between a man and the woman that he's married to. Now, when you think about our culture and society and all kinds of things happening in the church... Like people going, yeah, move in, live with somebody before you're married to them. Sexual purity is insignificant. Well, that's just like racism. It's just like misogyny. It's just like ignoring what God says about the role distinctions of men and women. It all is just discounting what God says in Genesis. He created it. He designed it. He says how it's supposed to work. 1 Corinthians tells us this. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For just as it is written, the two will become one flesh. How often does the New Testament base its teaching on the beginning chapters of Genesis, which some people think didn't really happen? But he who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So that's where men and women came from. The next time I teach, which is not next week, next week's Youth Sunday, John's going to be preaching. You should come see if he should be fired as a youth pastor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so John's going to be teaching. I'm excited about that. The next week we're going to come back. We're going to go through Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to explain, God is going to explain what is wrong with everything. This amazing thing that God created, men and women are supposed to love each other and have harmony and work together, and they're supposed to be, have great sex in marriage. I mean, all of those things, it's all supposed to be amazing and wonderful. And how often do we look around and go, man, there's something wrong with that. And uh, marriage is supposed to be wonderful. It's the most painful thing in my life, some people feel like. Or we have moments where we feel that. And what's wrong with the world? Why do people do bad things? Why is there so many broken things out there? Why do we struggle to be who God wants us to be in the church? Well, all of that we find out in Genesis 3, which a lot of people don't think happened. So let me pray for us. And... um, God, thank you so much for your word and, Lord, for the fact that you made us, that you made life, you made the world. And, God, it is our job to worship you, to obey you, and to think about people and to think about ourselves the way you tell us to. God, you love us. You have a plan for us. You've made a way for us to be saved. Lord, as we think about the fall of mankind and how that messed everything up, you were in the middle of that, coming up with a solution God, I pray that we would be people that never trust ourselves, but that we trust you, and that we read your word and that we submit to it. And God, as we think through how to do leadership in this church, God, help us to get rid of every bad idea from culture. That we would get rid of every sinful inclination that drives the things that we do. And that we would be people that humbly submit to you, that love each other, that encourage each other, that sharpen each other, And that, Lord, we would have the church that you want us to have. And so, God, we just are so thankful for your kindness and for your wisdom and for your love in your name. Amen.